You're listening to the news on RTHK. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on Monday the 25th of July. Welcome to a new week of Money Talk on Radio 3. This is Peter Lewis with the business and finance headlines. Disappointing business surveys from both sides of the Atlantic released Friday show activity unexpectedly contracted across the US and Eurozone for the first time in more than two years. S&P Global's US flash July purchasing managers indices recorded the services sector falling into contractionary territory for the first time since May 2020. The flash composite PMI dropped to 47.5 from 52.3. And across the Atlantic, Eurozone business activity fell to a 17-month low. S&P Global's flash Eurozone composite PMI fell to 49.4 in July, down from 52 in June. It's the first time the index has fallen below the 50 mark that separates growth from contraction since February 2021, when COVID-19 restrictions were still in place. China's banking regulator pledged Friday to take measures to defuse the worsening property and banking crisis on the mainland. The China Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission said it will work with the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development and China's Central Bank to ensure developers can deliver residential projects. It's also encouraging healthy financial institutions to merge with small and medium-sized banks. Financial Secretary Paul Chan said yesterday that Hong Kong's huge foreign exchange reserves of more than 440 billion US dollars are enough to maintain the linked exchange rate system with the US dollar, despite rising US interest rates leading to capital outflows. Mr Chan condemned recent rumours of the monetary peg's collapse as irresponsible. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Alex Wong of Alex KY Wong Asset Management Company and Andrew Sullivan of Outset Global. With a view from mainland China is Ben Cavender from the China Market Research Group. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In US markets on Friday, stocks, bond yields and oil were all lower and the dollar was unchanged following the disappointing business surveys. On Wall Street, a three-day rally was ended by a snap-led tech sell-off, but the S&P 500 still posted its best week in a month ahead of the Fed meeting later this week. The S&P 500 slid 0.9% on the day to 3,962, but was up 2.5% over the week, pairing this year's market route to about 17%. The Dow lost 138 points, ending the session at 31,899. For the week, the Dow was up 2%. The Nasdaq Composite Index tumbled 1.9% to 11,834, but notched a gain over the five sessions of 3.3%. Shares of Snap, that's the owner of popular photo-sharing social media app Snapchat, crashed more than 39% after it posted the weakest sales growth since going public, missed revenue expectations and said it's to slow the rate of hiring. The company also failed to provide guidance for the third quarter. In Europe, the region-wide Stock 600 index saw its best weekly gain since late May, rising 2.9%. The UK's FTSE 100 climbed 1.6% over the five days. 
Hong Kong stocks finished Friday slightly higher, but gains were tempered by ongoing worries about the global economic outlook and the ongoing property market crisis on the mainland. The Hang Seng Index edged up 35 points, or 0.2%, to close at 20,609. For the week, it gained 1.5%. The Hang Seng Tech Index added a third of a percent, taking its weekly gain to 3.5%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite dipped 0.1% to 3,270. For the week, it rose 1.3%. The troubled mainland property sector remained a drag on overall performance. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index fell 0.3% on Friday, taking its losses over the past three weeks to almost 34%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled 0.7% lower at $103.20 a barrel for the week. Brent gained 2%. Copper is up 2.4% over the week. Gold, which slipped below $1,700 last week, has rebounded back to $1,725 an ounce. U.S. Treasury bonds surged higher with yields declining on the poor survey data. The 10-year Treasury bond yield dropped 13 basis points to 2.75%. That's the lowest since late May and a big turnaround from their post-ECB high of 3.08%. The U.S. dollar index was unchanged on Friday but down 1.3% over the week at a three-week low as rate height expectations eased. Fed Fund's futures markets are pricing in just a 20% chance of a 100 basis point rate hike by the FOMC on Thursday morning. That's Hong Kong time compared to odds of 44% earlier last week. The most likely outcome appears to be a 75 basis point increase according to futures markets. This morning, the euro is trading at $1.02. The buck's trading at 136 and a third Japanese yen. One British pound buys $1.20 and nine Hong Kong dollars and 41 cents. The Chinese yuan sits at 6.76 in offshore markets. And it was a good week for cryptocurrencies with Bitcoin up around 10% from a week ago at $22,600. Taking a quick look around Asia-Pacific stock markets as they open up. Bit of a mixed picture. The ASX 200 in Australia up 0.1%. In Japan, uh, the Nikkei 225 is down about 0.6%. The Cosby in South Korea is up a quarter of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 170 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Times 810. Let's welcome our guests. Over in our Queensway studio, we have our regular Monday commentator, Alex Wong, director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management Company. Morning, Alex. Hey, morning, Peter. And also with us, Andrew Sullivan, the managing director of Outset Global. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Now, as you heard there in the uh, introduction and the headlines, reports Friday showed business activity unexpectedly contracting across the US and the Eurozone for the first time in more than two years. Is um, a recession the price we're going to have to pay now for beating inflation, do you think? Well, I think at least the market is pricing in uh, a recession right now because if you look at the bond market, actually, uh, the bond yields have stopped to um, surge. Uh, people actually ex- expect uh, the high interest rate environment may not last long and also commodity prices retreated. And together with the weakness in the stock market side, I think uh, people are worrying about the a, a recession and also decline in uh, corporate profits. So I think uh, at least we are pricing in a recession right now. 
Uh, Andrew, the rates are surging, aren't they, around the, around the world, particularly in the US where they're being front-loaded. Do you think this is going to induce a deep slowdown or recession? Well, I think the, the obvious hope is the fact that it, you know, they're looking to try and curtail expectations, um, that, which is incredibly hard to do, and we've already seen you know, strikes and uh, wage rides demands, and that's the real problem that they have because you know, that becomes a spiralling event. Whether they can you know, make it a soft landing or a hard landing, I think is still to be determined. You know, it, it's difficult to tell how much um, savings people have actually managed to um, to amass during the lockdowns, and whether they've had to spend on other things. You know, we're seeing now uh, people wanting to spend on services to go on holiday and things like that, things that they hadn't been able to do before. Um, so there are going to be parts of the economy that will certainly go into recession, but there will be other parts of the economy that actually start uh, picking up again. So it, it'll be uh, you know a swings and roundabouts game, I think. This speed of tightening, though, which is um, really because the Fed, the ECB and the others, they, they totally underestimated, didn't they, what, what is the worst inflation now in decades. Um, it makes this soft landing much harder uh, to achieve because they've really got to drive uh, rates much higher. Well, it makes it harder, certainly. But, you know, as, as we've mentioned, you know, we're already seeing some of those commodity prices coming off. We're starting to see some of the supply chains uh, react and, and reorientate to the, to the uh, current uh, situation. Uh, we've still got uncertainties about some of the grains and things like that because of the Russian-Ukrainian situation. So, you know, it's not all bad news out there, but it's certainly not going to be easy. And I think, you know, as, as we've just said, is the expectation is that it's more likely to be some sort of recession or at least a, an extreme slowdown uh, rather than plain sailing. Alex, does this all make you sometimes question why do we need central banks? And I sort of ask that maybe slightly tongue-in-cheek, but nevertheless, um, people must be losing faith in, in central banks' ability to control inflation and, and manage the, uh, the economy. Well, I, think, I think this time is a little bit different because there are many factors which are not uh, affected by uh, controlled by monetary policies because at this time we have the pandemic-driven factors and also the war-driven factors. So I will not blame the central banks uh, totally. Mm, but they have been very slow to react, haven't they? And they're, in some ways they are way behind the curve now. Oh yeah, but they are catching up this year at least. So mm. I think uh, hopefully um, expectations change a little bit because if you look at the commodity markets, at least they drive up some spec those are speculative interests and we are seeing a peak in the commodity prices already. So we need to see uh, other things are coming back to normal. But that I think is beyond central bank's control. Well, these commodity prices that you mentioned, gasoline prices in the US down about 10% from their mid-June highs. Wheat futures are down almost 40% since mid-May. Um, do you think that's going to be enough uh, to, to, to ensure inflation is peaked? But, and is the problem going to be maybe, though, that it's going to still be at a fairly high level, even if it has peaked? Yeah, this is still a very high, high I think uh, the, the, the job of the fact is to drive out um, those um, speculators in that in those markets. So uh, we at least we should not suffer those extremely high levels. So uh, we shall see whether other factors have, have become normalized again. So I think that that is beyond central bank's control. I think it's also worth pointing out that you know, the central banks that we're really talking about have very different uh, aspirations in many respects. I mean, the, the Fed is the only one with a dual mandate. The ECB is trying to control 37 different countries. Uh, and Japan hasn't changed its attitude in, in nearly 20 years. Mm. So, you know, the fact that they, you know, none of them are really 
changing their views in any time, quick time, just really gives you an indica indication that the, it's the institution's you know, mandates that are really driving them and the fact that they're not being forced to change by popular opinion. But this is going to be a test, isn't it, for uh, central banks like the, uh, the ECB, raised rates for the first time um, in 11 years. And this, this new data suggests that the Eurozone economy is, is really teetering on the, on the brink of recession because of slumping demand and, and rising costs. Well, again, you've got, you know, you've got very different economies trying to be pulled into one central bank's domain. You know, if you look at, you know, you've got Draghi has just resigned in Italy, so putting that, uh, you know, the bond market there into turmoil. You've got slowdown in Germany. You've had the Brexit situation, which has changed the economics of Europe quite dramatically. Uh, and the central bank's still trying to, you know, trying to spin all the plates and keep them spinning in the air, so to speak. What is the impact of, of global rising rates going to be on Hong Kong? Paul Chan yesterday, writing on his blog, warned of the effects of, of interest rates, of rising interest rates on the Hong, Hong Kong economy. What do you think the impact is going to be? I think uh, eventually Hong Kong interest rates will rise. Right now, um, Hong Kong actually is not uh, seeing uh, any defensive move on the interest rate side. So we, need, we probably will see some um, interest rate uh, uh, upward pressure in Hong Kong and of course that would put some pressures uh, on the asset markets here and also economic activities here. Uh, right now um, the situation is still under control but I think uh, with the uh, weakness in the Hong Kong dollar continuing then we would see uh, Hong Kong interest rate to go up a little bit at least. I think the bigger the bigger problem Hong Kong has at the moment is, you know, companies not wishing to come here, people not wishing to come here, uh, and and in, in the thing wanting to move their assets out of uh, out of Hong Kong, partly because of concerns over China, uh, and partly concerns over just the freedom of access into Hong Kong. How big a, an issue is this capital flight out of Hong Kong? Because it's been exacerbated by uh, not just people leaving, but also the interest rate differential between. Uh, U.S. and Hong Kong dollar rates. So, so is that a problem? I think it's a growing problem, and it's it's something that's difficult to uh, to actually address in the short term because a lot of it's you know governed by uh, what we're seeing on the mainland with uh, Xi Jinping putting you know party politics in front of the economy. What, what's um, at what point do you think that uh, Hong Kong banks are going to have to increase their prime rate and pass on these rises in interest rates to mortgage holders? So far, they've they've held off, haven't they? But presumably, they're going to have to move soon, particularly if we get a seventy-five basis point rise on Thursday. Yeah, eventually, I think you will. Uh, but the interbank rate differential actually is still huge between Hong Kong dollar and US dollar. So we, mm. we probably may need to see a spike up in the interbank rate first. So in the meantime, actually, it is surprisingly um, high differential between Hong Kong dollar and US dollar. So uh, probably we may still have some room to hold the, uh, on the prime rate, but I think eventually we will see a, a, a rise in there. And why isn't that rate closing? It, it ought to that differential, shouldn't it? But it doesn't seem to be uh, really closing up at all. Yeah, so that means that the liquidity here is still okay. So we probably need to see more outflow before the the, 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 the the gap close. I think that's the key thing. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, you know, we talk about people leaving Hong Kong and the rest of it, but, you know, probably 90% of the population, that's really not an option. You know, their money is already tied up in property here, uh, and there isn't a huge outflow of of you know, liquid money really going out of the economy. So, you know, that, that, that keeps us quite stable in the short term.
Well, and, and what does this mean for the for the property markets here? We saw the uh, the centre city leading index gauge of lived in homes, which is compiled by Centerline Property Agency in Hong Kong. It fell about 0.7% for the weekend of July the 17th. It's only the second time in the past eight weeks that that index has fallen uh, below 180. But presumably these rising rates are going to start to impact the, the Hong Kong property market. Yeah, eventually, I think uh, the the, the, the the price would correct a little bit. But I think uh, the, the the fact is uh, we have a lot of rich Hong Kong people here and they actually pay off their mortgages already. And the developers here are, are, are not highly leveraged, so they can uh, take a very defensive uh, uh, stance and, and hold on to the sales. So I think uh, that's why the, the, the property market actually is surprisingly stable here. So... Um, uh, with a high rates, I think the pressure will still uh, be on the downside. But uh, in the meantime, probably we may not see too much correction room uh, for the market because people are surprisingly um, resilient. And then, but 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 the problem is uh, the the weakness in the in the China property market actually may spill over here. I think the other thing is we've we've still got people getting married, people that want to get onto the property ladder, uh, and you're seeing that in the fact that the developers are uh, producing smaller units. Uh, for people to to start homes with, so um, you know there's still big demand there. Let me ask you also about the the peg because Paul Chan has been commenting on that over the weekend. He condemned recent rumours of the monetary peg's collapse as irresponsible. I think he's probably referring to. Uh, Heyman Capital Management's Carl Bass. He wrote on Twitter last week that the HKMA's reserves to defend the Hong Kong dollar were falling because of recent interventions to prop up its value. And he claimed that the reserves could be exhausted uh, by the end of next month. Now, Mr. Chan, he wrote on his blog that foreign exchange reserves here in Hong Kong are huge. They're more than 400 uh, 440 billion US dollars. That's equivalent to about 1.7 times the monetary base of the Hong Kong dollar. He says the financial and banking system is liquid, bank operations are stable, and asset quality is excellent, which he says are the solid foundations for us to maintain the linked exchange rate system. So who's right here? I think Paul is right. Uh, because um, we have seen this kind of attackers uh, for many times and actually Kyabas has been their long-term loser already. So uh, we haven't yet seen a uh, spike in the Hong Kong interbank rate. So this is way too early to, to call for a collapse in the system mm. because uh, we need to see a spike up in the interest rate first. So that is the first um, uh, bad sign. But we haven't, we haven't seen the bad, first bad sign right now. So uh, I think uh, it's still too way early to call for a collapse. If, and if, I, think, I think the other thing is, is, I mean, Paul's right that our asset quality and the lending against that asset base is actually quite reserved. It's not like anything that they've seen in the US in the past. The monetary authority here has already always you know, had strict limitations on the valuations uh, and the mortgage amounts versus the valuations. So that's you know, given them a very good buffer. I would have thought that if you have um, reserves equivalent to 1.7 times the monetary base of the Hong Kong dollar, that effectively means the HKMA, if it had to, it wouldn't, but if it had to, could buy every single Hong Kong dollar in existence and still have reserves left. So presumably it would be impossible to break the peg, wouldn't it? Interest rates anyway would soar ages before you got to that point. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the more likely thing is, um, you know, the uh, the U.S. might take uh, umbrage at uh, 
you know, Ping An wanting to break up HSBC, which is our US clearing bank. Mm. Um, they would not be happy with that, and that would be the one thing that could be, would be more likely to break the dollar peg than anything else, I think. Okay. Finally, Alex, let me just get your thoughts, both of your thoughts, on, uh, on stocks. We've seen this uh, uh, dire earnings report from Snap, didn't we, uh, on Friday, mm. which really impacted the tech sector. Um, is that shock going to reduce appetite for tech stocks, do you think? I don't think so. I think uh, people overgeneralize uh, the impact from Snap because Snap is not a uh, very strong franchise among social media. So um, the spillover into other big techs actually uh, is not very um, sensible. So this week uh, will be very important because we will have uh, the earning release of other firms. So that would be more indicative. So I think uh, the... Friday's uh, decline probably, probably could be seen a correction to recent rally. But of course, uh, right now, the overall sentiment is still weak. So we may still see a day-by-day um, gyration based on uh, latest uh, corporate earnings release. Yeah, I mean, I think the you know we've got a busy week coming up. Both the, you know, we've got an FOMC meeting, we've got US GDP, we've got a lot of uh, PMI data coming through, uh, and we've got about a third of the S and P reporting in the US, and we've got reports from you know Japan in Europe. It's just going to be a very very busy week, uh, and and I think that's just going to mean we see a lot of volatility. Okay, well, thank you very much. You heard there, Andrew Sullivan, managing director of Outset Global. Alex Wong, who's director of Alex KY Wong Asset Management Company. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. It's 8.24 up in Shanghai. We should find Ben Cavender, who's managing director of the China Market Research Group. Morning, Ben. Good morning. Um, let me get your thoughts on a bit about what life is like in Shanghai at the moment, because the, the lockdowns seem to be coming back, uh, maybe sort of in a controlled way. And also you've got heat waves up there as well now. Um, is it pretty tough there? Yeah, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. I'd say on the whole, we're moving towards a more open status. You're just starting to see signs of life with smaller businesses that previously kind of weren't able to get their doors open. But having said that, I, I think there are some challenges. We are seeing a lot of spot lockdowns with various apartment complexes being locked down. Um, I know a lot of people that have worked at offices that have sort of been called a, a close contact without really knowing who they were even a close contact to and having to do um, short stints either at quarantine at home or even being sent to uh, quarantine facilities proactively. So I think there's still a lot of challenges to daily life here and to business here. Uh, but, but having said that, overall, uh, we are moving towards a more open status. Okay. And of course, one of the, th- the other things that's affecting people is uh, this property crisis. Where it seems to be spreading, doesn't it? And we've got this extraordinary mortgage strike now. Buyers in uh, more than 300 projects in more than 90 cities threatening to stop servicing their home mortgages. Um, uh, the problem being 70% of families' wealth is tied up in property, isn't it? And that's falling in value. And at the same time, people's incomes are under pressure because of uh, because of the lockdowns and not being able to work or losing their jobs altogether. I suspect families, individuals, the consumer, they must be under a lot of strain at the moment. Yeah, I think the property crisis has created a real issue of negative sentiment. I think in, you know, in real, you know, renminbi terms, in terms of what somebody has in their wallet on a daily basis, it hasn't really made much of a difference yet. Um, but I think in terms of people's willingness to spend, it absolutely has. Um, I think with you, you seeing people not paying their mortgages right now, the reality in most cases is 
should they keep paying those mortgages and then they find out that that money disappears, they can actually apply to the government to get it rebated to them. So there's no real reason for them to not pay other than the extreme displeasure of the fact that they haven't had their properties delivered on time and really wondering what's going to happen. Um, and that's having a major knockdown effect now in terms of how people spend uh, on a daily basis. And you're seeing families being much less likely to give extra money to their kids to go you know, buy some new clothes or go to a restaurant or something like that. Um, and they're deferring a lot of big purchases now. And so I think that's a real drag right now on the consumer economy. And I don't think it's going to get bad, better really anytime soon unless there are major changes. Are these policies putting pressure on the on the social contracts between the government and the people? Are people questioning these policies at the moment? Uh, you know, I think when you look at the, the issues in the property sector and then you also look at what's happened with, with some of this, this off-book lending that's happened through some of these, these regional banks, um, it, it is fraying the social contract a little bit. I think this is the angriest that I've seen. Um, you know, everyday Chinese with the government and how the government handles economic policy in the, you know, in the entire 17 years that I've been here. So um, I, I do think it's a real issue. Um, and I think this year is obviously a, you know, a very pivotal year. And, and I think the government's going to have to tread quite carefully in terms of how they respond to people's uh, anger right now. And I, I think they're starting to do that, but there's probably still a long way to go to making sure that, that people do feel like they're getting a fair shake right now and so so it's likely we'll see some kind of changes going forward so so what do you make of the government's remedies to try and uh, sort out this issue things like uh trying to get banks to lend to viable developers so they can finish the properties getting larger banks to merge with smaller and mid-sized banks are these solutions enough well, you know, it's a, it's a start, but it, it kind of, you know, calls into question, how did we get here in the first place? Because we, we ended up in this situation due to this, this very aggressive move to put these three red lines in place, which, which really put a lot of immediate pressure on developers, which, frankly speaking, there probably did need to be some pressure because they were, they were doing a lot of sort of sleight of hand with how they were moving money around. Um, but we may have taken it too far. And so this, this pushing banks to lend to developers to get projects finished it's a, it's a step towards remedying that. Um, I don't know if it works in a, a systemic long-term way really well. Um, I, my, my guess is there's going to be a push towards actually having local governments maybe take more of a, a controlling stake or equity position in some of these developers, which I think the central government and local governments would like as it sort of rebalances power again towards the state. Um, but whether or not that's the right thing to do and whether or not it works cleanly um, really remains to be seen. But, but certainly in the short term, projects do need to get finished. They sort of need to take, take, take pressure out of the market and make people feel like projects are being completed. Um, so in that sense, I, I think it's a step in the right direction. But I think right now, consumers are still worried, you know, if they lend money to a project, if they buy a house, you know, where is the money going to go and are they going to get back what they paid for? And I, I think that this doesn't really completely answer that question for consumers yet. Does it also just spread the risk from the property sector to the financial sector? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's 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 spreading the risk around. We have a you know a situation here, which is that there is a tremendous amount of of debt, certainly at the local government level and you know at local uh, financial institutions. This certainly doesn't make that situation any better. Um, I think the reality is is that we're we're going to have to except um, slower growth this year, and it's unlikely that the government's going to be able to, to do too much to really speed up the economy 
throughout the rest of 2022 because they have to be mindful of the fact that there are these risks in the system. And so um, I, I think from the standpoint of, you know, hitting these aggressive GDP targets that we, we used to have you know, prior to the lockdowns, um, it, it doesn't look very good. But I think they're probably going to be willing to accept slower growth in the name of sort of keeping things stable and, and hoping to kind of improve the situation going into 2023. Thanks, Ben, very much. That's Ben Cavender, Managing Director of the China Market Research Group up in Shanghai. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take another look around Asia-Pacific stock markets. In Australia, the SX200 up 0.1%. Uh, the Nikkei 225 uh, cutting back some of its losses. It's down about a third of a percent at the moment. Cosby in South Korea moving in the other direction, up 0.4%. And it looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 150 points lower in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. Coming up after the news, back chat with Janice Wong and Mike Rouse. The weather forecast, fine and very hot. Maximum temperature about 36 degrees in urban areas, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. And the outlook is for it to be persistently very hot and fine for the rest of July. The very hot weather warning is in force. It's 31 degrees right now, 78% relative humidity. Time's coming up to 8.32. Here's Andy Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, who's begun a diplomatic offensive in Africa, has dismissed claims that Moscow is to blame for the global food crisis. In a speech to Arab League ambassadors in Cairo, he accused Western nations of trying to impose their dominance over other countries. The aggressiveness with which the West addressed this situation, both from the point of view of physical sanctions, from the point of view of the hate speech indicates one very simple conclusion. It is not about Ukraine. It is about the future of the world order. Many African countries are reliant on Ukrainian grain supplies. Some are facing food shortages. The authorities in the Bahamas say 17 people have drowned after a vessel carrying migrants capsized. The police said the boat turned over 11 kilometers off the island of New Providence. More than 20 people were rescued. The police commissioner of the Bahamas, Clayton Fernandez, said one woman had been found alive inside the overturned boat. The officers heard a knocking uh, to the hull of the boat, the divers eventually went down, and that's where they recovered the bodies, the 17 bodies. There was one female uh, who was still alive, was up in the air pocket of that, uh, the hull of that boat. So I believe that that's what kept her alive. The latest module of the nation's space station has successfully docked with the main unit 13 hours after the rocket carrying it blasted off from Hainan province. The Wenqian lab will be mostly used for scientific experiments, but will also provide backup life support and control functions for the Tiangong space station. The taikonauts aboard the station are expected to enter the new module later. Hong Kong's sizzling weekend of very hot weather continued yesterday with the SAR recording its third hottest day since records began in 1884. Joanne Wong has details. 
The observatory said the thermometer reading at its headquarters went as high as 36.1 degrees Celsius in the afternoon, making it the hottest ever July day. Shang Shui saw its mercury level shooting up to 39 degrees, and people in most places in Hong Kong sweltered in temperatures over 35 degrees. Meanwhile, a 60-year-old man died after falling unconscious during a hike at Lantau Island's West Docks Tees. He was declared dead at the scene. It follows the death on Saturday of a man during a hike at Sharps Peak in Sai Kung. He's thought to have suffered heat stroke and was declared dead after being airlifted to hospital. The observatory reminded the public to avoid being under the sun for too long, stay hydrated, and beware of heat stroke. That's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to.